Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone. I feel a particular affinity with my guest today and I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to connect and share their story. There are many, many ways in which they could be described. An ultramarathon open sea ocean swimmer, that's a bit of a mouthful, who was once a Buddhist nun, a single parent who homeschools their autistic son, and an adventurer who suffered from a crippling chronic illness in their youth. From being confined to a wheelchair with Emmy at 17, in 2016, they set out to become the first person to swim across the seven most dangerous sea channels in the world, known as Ocean Seven in a 12 month period. However, that challenge does not necessarily define their career and there are many, many swims to talk about here. So I'm really excited to delve into their stories um, because they really do epitomize for me what being your own hero means and showing that we are not defined or determined by our circumstances. So I'll now pass over to them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and welcome them to running on joy, although they have just told me they are certainly not a runner. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Beth French. And yes, if you see me running, it really does mean the zombie apocalypse has begun because I will not be at the front of the queue. Um, I am a self-employed sea swimmer um, who's, who's homeschools their uh, autistic son. Um, I fell into the adventure world because I dreamed of being an adventurer when I was a child, but assumed very wrongly that you had to have a very set and special criteria for achieving that in your lifetime. I assumed you had to have either rich parents or Olympic backgrounds or special schooling or training um, and found myself at the age of 30 realising that I'd ticked off just about everything on my bucket list. Um, So yes, that was where my adventuring really began because I realised that I had actually achieved quite an adventurous lifetime based on my um, history of ill health. Mm, I think that's that's an incredible way to to start the conversation really um because I think so many people do have this idea of you know adventure has to be this kind of massive tough thing of going and summiting Everest or something for it to qualify as an adventure and so many of us go through those metaphorical mountains every day and those are the sort of the, the biggest ones that um that we face and you you are a shining example of that I think and I, I think we can kind of 
come on to what <laughs> what perhaps is the most challenging thing in terms of swimming versus everything else that you that you have overcome and do overcome on on a daily basis but I'm interested just to kind of rewind a little bit to start off with um, and what growing up was like for you and your relationship to the outdoors and to water sure so I I'm the third of four girls um, who grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere and um, the idea, I think, was to end up having a boy to take over the um, farm and or my dad's business. But um, after four girls, I think it was decided that it wasn't going to happen. I was very much the tomboy of the family. Uh, so I was very outdoorsy and adventurous, but there wasn't a sporting gene in our family. Um, you know, my, my parents were very practically outdoorsy. But there was no, we, we were taught to be sort of anti-competitive. You know, it was very much collaborative in getting jobs done around the farm. Um, but by the time I was nine, I was sort of carrying, you know, heavy bales of hay and, and you know, 10 gallon buckets of water and things. So I was very strong um, and I liked being outdoors. Um, but I, as much as I loved being, you know, doing the work, I loved then when we clocked off going and climbing trees and and spending time out in nature. So nature was very much a huge part of our upbringing and, you know, raising our own animals for meat and, and, and uh, growing our own veg was just a normal part of life. Um, but I was very much a water babe. And, you know, I grew up in a time before digital photography. So there weren't many uh, photos of us when we were young. And I think I would probably say about 90% of the photos of me under the age of five, I'm in some form of water, whether I'm genuinely climbing in a bucket in a nappy or I'm in a stream or face down in a puddle throwing a tantrum, you know, me and water kind of always seems to be in the same place at the same time. Um, so yeah, when I was about 10, um, I got an unknown illness. Um, I just became really, really weak and tired, uh, bedridden. Um, my glands were sore, but they weren't particularly up. And I had a slight temperature, but enough to, not, to be a fever. And, um, you know, growing up in this farming community, if you don't have you know, a rash or you haven't got a, a, a fever or you haven't got a broken bone. It's kind of, well, you just have to get on and, and make do and, and, and keep going. But the more I pushed, the, the iller I got. And so after about 10 weeks, my mum took me to the doctor and they said, well, we think you might have glandular fever. You just have to go away and rest. And so that, you know, was assumed what had happened. But I never fully recovered. I would seemingly get better for maybe a month at a time or maybe two months at a time. And then I would have these crashes where I'd be completely bedridden again and I would hurt so much. It literally felt like I had molten lava flowing through my veins. It burnt to try and move. And I would have almost, well, beyond sort of migraine type things, I was assessed for meningitis a few times because opening my eyes hurt so much. The light hurt my eyes. So I literally had to lie in a darkened room with my eyes shut because it hurt so much. And I would get these flare ups of, of um, temperature and my glands would come up. Um, but seemingly, you know, all the blood tests would show negative. So this went on um, throughout my entire adolescence. And it wasn't until I was 17 and, and actually completely confined to a wheelchair that I was then retrospectively diagnosed with ME. And, you know, seven years is a long time, but actually quite common from when symptoms start to when people get diagnosed with ME and that's one of the the critical times where a lot of damage can actually be done because if you imagine you know from 10 to 17 there's a lot that happens in someone's lifetime 
but then to lose faith in your body and to essentially be gaslit by being told there's nothing wrong with you or she's just being lazy or a typical adolescent female that likes to lie around or it's all in her head. You know, you you end up with really negative um, mental health and coping strategies. So I ended up uh, self-harming. I ended up uh, bulimic with anorexic episodes. Um, you know, just because I was trapped in my own body. So when it failed, you know, when I when I couldn't get out of bed and there was no visible sign, um, it turned inwards. You know, I, I hated being in my body. And that was a really negative, um, a whole hugely negative time. And so by the time I was 17, getting a diagnosis, whilst it was a relief, a lot of damage had actually been done. And a lot of my adventuring now had has actually been this kind of building, rebuilding a relationship with my body positively. So yeah, my childhood was fascinating because it was beautiful and utopian on one hand, but then from 10 was this really quite a, a hellscape of, of peaks and troughs of energy and, and illness that was completely misunderstood and misdiagnosed for a long time. And I imagine that You've been so kind of prepared in many ways for practicalities of the world with your upbringing on the farm, but then also that coming at the point that you're fundamentally developing in terms of your body and your identity. I imagine when you hit 17, it must have been like, whoa, <laughs> it's a kind of overwhelming feeling of, okay, I've got to now like make my way, but with little pointers of how... I'm going to sort of fit, fit in in this world where no one really understands what I'm going through with things. Yeah, I mean, we it it took us about four changes of doctor to even get somebody to um, recognise what was going on, and and it was only because this doctor had a niece who had this experience herself um, that he diagnosed me, and I was told that I could be like this for life. You know, so at 17 to be told that you may not have a future, you know, you you grew up expecting to go to college, to go to university, to get a job. And when you think that I was in bed for eight months without a break um, and for some of that being asleep for 22 hours a day, having to be physically shaken awake because I couldn't stay conscious. You know, you think, how can I have a future? There is no future. Um, you know, you really are sort of at the bottom of a well. And and sometimes it really did feel like it was all pitch black, but a tiny speck of light that I couldn't quite grasp and reach onto, which was moving forwards. And, you know, I, I do get asked, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you do um, with your own history that, you know, how how did you get better? How did you ever come out of it? And to be honest, part of me never has. Part of me is still in that black hole, hoping I find, you know, stability. Um, and it's it took about 20 years for me to feel confident in my body. Um, but there is no there is no easy path out of it. Uh, there is no straight path out of it, for sure, because there's still peaks and troughs. I've just learned to be completely arbitrary and listen to my body. And now looking back, I can say it. I mean, it's it sounds very glib, but. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't swap it with my best friend because the the strength that I have in my belief and trust in my own body is absolute. So nobody can tell me, well, you can do this today. You can be able to do it tomorrow. And for me to have any doubt in how I feel. So if I wake up tomorrow and, and 
don't feel like it or don't feel up to it, nobody can make me try because I know that if I try when I'm feeling low or if I if I push myself when I'm feeling fatigued already, I will damage myself longer term. So being arbitrary and saying, I'm really sorry to let you down. I'm having a pyjama day today. I have no guilt anymore, which is a wonderful, incredible thing to have. And, and we get taught, particularly in, in the Western world, that bigger, better, faster, more is the only way to go. And when you're learning to drive, the brake is the most important pedal. And yet we never get taught that with our energy, with our health, with learning, with life. So, yeah, it, it has given me, ME has given me a huge insight and it wasn't an easy lesson. And like I said, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But building a conscious adult relationship with my body and with my health has been the best thing that I could possibly have wished for. And with boundaries, I guess, as well. That's a really interesting reflection. Um, I had someone at, at, at work the other day say, oh, um, there's something I really respect about you. I was like, oh, what is it? Um, <laughs> and she said, you know how to look after yourself, as in you, you can set your boundaries. And it, for a moment, I was kind of processing it, thinking, oh, does she mean that I'm really selfish and kind of like cop out of things? Because I think my kind of, my chronic illness head was on being like, oh, you're flaky. Oh, you're, you're letting people down kind of thing. And she's like, no, I, I mean it. Like it's, you seem so strong and set and, you know, determined of what you know is right. And it's like, oh, that's, that's really interesting because I don't have that notion myself. So I think I'm still going through that process of, of trusting in, in the narrative that I put out into the world of, no, you're not being selfish. You're actually protecting yourself so that you can then show up <laughs> again tomorrow when yeah. you've had your duvet day or whatever, or you've had to retreat from the world a bit or press pause on social interactions. And things. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is a really key point that we, a lot of people with um, chronic illnesses or autoimmune disorders have is that in a, monologue that we have is always a little bit self-doubting that well I I know that I could push myself to do it you know because I'm not as bad as I can get how much have I got in the bank account should I you know it's the shoulda woulda coulda things and other people see you as being really strong you know I mean I've always been told oh you're the most active person I know you're the most vibrant person I know it's like yeah you only see me when I can get out of bed <laughs> you know, and there is a lot of the time where you know you do put on the smiling face, and we all have that public persona. You know, we all have to turn up to work sometimes when we really would would rather not. But for people with autoimmune things, it really is that balance of power of you know, if I push myself today, do I have the next week to recover from it? And sometimes you do, and that's fine, which is why I can swim channels because I can be absolutely arbitrary, which is why I'm completely unemployable. I'm self employed. Because I can spend a week in bed when I need to. And I have to in order to do you know, the more fun things in life. And I can't train like most people expect me to do. I can't train consistently. You know, I have very much peaks and troughs. And so my training, you know, people have asked me to write training programs. I don't have one because it's all based on how you feel. You know, can you push yourself today? Therefore, make it work today you know if you have a, a a day where you're feeling really quite shaky look at the mental preparation look at the stretching and and being in your body that's as 
valuable as your personal bests or your you know your distance training so yeah it, it's it's a fascinating area that you know training for long distances and and working towards ultra endurance events you have to do it how it works for you and i find prescriptive training programs can be quite damaging because you set yourself up for failure if you're putting yourself in a you know a robotic box we are not machines and we shouldn't treat ourselves as machines particularly for the female athletes you know we have natural cycles that you have to follow you know you can't expect a woman to be the same on day one as day 14 as day seven you know it, it's just it doesn't work that way so you know yeah I think there's a lot of sports psychology and sports science that is starting to catch up with the female experience and I think then we'll start to catch up with autoimmune and chronic illness um, programs where people can achieve huge and incredible things they just have to do it in their own way and they can't be fit into a box yeah, and I think also kind of respecting the fact that, I mean, I definitely find that although I'm spending a lot of time resting <laughs> like you, that then means that when I kind of microdose with with training, my body is super responsive to it. So I don't need to do though those kind of like really long, hard hammering efforts and things. And um, I think it's really interesting what you say about actually thinking about it in the wider context of female bodies and, and training as well. Um, and I, I think, you know, we we are not, you know, small men, I think is the, <laughs> the expression being used. And there is a lot to learn from people with chronic illnesses. It isn't being weak or less of something. It's actually being a lot more because what you can achieve with less is really quite astonishing, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the old school... Uh, mentality of training you know these are these these peak performance ones where you have this you know long slow incline and, and and you reach your peak in a very short tapering period before an event you know that's that's that works for some people but actually not not everybody and not very not not the majority of people I don't think so yeah it is it there's there's things to learn from where it doesn't work I mean this is what I've learned um with my son who who's autistic is if the world was okay for someone who's autistic, it would be okay for everybody. You know, if it was, if school was okay for dyslexics, it would be okay for everybody. You know, so actually making programs for a fit, um, straight white man who's got no medical conditions works for the smallest number of people. Whereas if you have to tailor a program so that it is more um, intuitive and so you have a range of exercises or activities which include restive ones or um, introspective ones you know most I mean particularly when you're talking endurance events so much more of it is mental and mental preparation and psychological you know there's a, an adage in the swimming community that channel swimming is 80% mental you know, because the boat is much closer to you than France when you're swimming the channel. And at any stage, you will feel doubt. You will feel fatigue. You will hurt. You will wonder what on earth you're doing. You will feel like you can't go on. You know, there's it's only your mind that says, can I do one more stroke until my mind picks up? Yeah, I can imagine that that boat looks far more tempting than the very, very distant prospect of cheese at the end when you're, when you're swimming to Absolutely, France. Especially when you've got a jellyfish <laughs> in the face or, you know, you get to slap of water in the mouth or you get cramped. You know, there's so many things that, you know, mini, mini annoyances that, that feel huge at two o'clock in the morning when you're tired. Yeah. 
Absolutely. The boat looks very, very inviting. There's hot chocolate on there. There's there's warm clothes. <laughs> boat sounds great. <laughs> and that does kind of bring me to thinking about, you know, most people when faced with a life-changing illness like you were might be inclined to shy away from thought of doing more challenges on top of that and like you said doctors often say like well just go away and rest and like that'll make it better and actually well it doesn't it it makes it worse because you start like cramping up in different ways and you're not moving and then your mental health spirals etc etc but you did something completely opposite to that um and I wanted to kind of delve into your list that you made and what was on that list and what what inspired you to first start making it at that point when I imagine you must have been like at, at rock bottom emotionally and physically so when I was 17 I, I woke up one day and you know just couldn't get out of bed and I thought okay here we go you know here's another month where I'm in bed and it just didn't stop and it didn't stop and we ended up applying for a wheelchair and I was I was bedridden for about eight months and in a wheelchair either side of that for about another four months either side so um over, just over a year in total and during that period um where allopathic medicine had basically said you have to go away and rest there's nothing we can do for you my mum um sought alternative treatments for symptoms just to try and get some symptomatic relief for me so we went to see this chap who had a, a string of different things to his bow he was acupuncturist um osteopath herbalist all different kinds of things and um he sent my mum the room because he said he was gonna tell me something um that I wouldn't like and he didn't think he didn't want my mum to interfere with how I reacted to it so he said um everything you've ever done and the way you've done it the way you have led your life, the way you think about yourself, the way you treat people, the way you let other people treat you has led you to where you are now. You're the only person who can change anything about this. It's in your hands and you're going to hate me, but I want you to write a bucket list of things that you would rather be doing right now and give yourself reasons to get better. So write a list of possible futures, no matter how outlandish they seem. Give yourself a, a, a wish list to daydream over and do spend your time in bed daydreaming. And so I went away and I was, I mean, I just, I hated him with every ounce of venom that a 17 year old girl can have, which is a lot, because it wasn't my fault that I was in the wheelchair. If you don't take responsibility for where you are and move forwards, then you are stuck and you're a victim. So I wrote this bucket list basically. Um, and it had random things. I wanted to climb a mountain. I wanted to swim with wild dolphins. I wanted to build my own house. I wanted to um, experience childbirth. I wanted to ride a camel in the Sahara. Um, I wanted to see what it was like living in a monastery. Um, you know, some of these I didn't think were possible because at that time I only knew about Christianity and if you were a nun, you were a nun for life. You know, so it wasn't things that I wanted, you know, necessarily thought that I was going to do, but it was literally experiences that I would like to have and um, yeah, so when I started to get out of the wheelchair and start to get better, it was very much like a a kind of a three-legged greyhound coming out of the stocks. You know, I would come out blasted and then fall flat on my face and then I would blast for a bit and fall flat on my face. And it was that for about 12 years. It was not a quick fix. 
But I realized, you know, after when I reached 30, I'd realized that I had climbed a mountain, albeit a very small one in Southern Ireland. I had swum with wild dolphins and built my own house whilst I was in Hawaii, where you don't need glass in the windows and you can kind of make a shack and call that your home. And there is dolphins everywhere, you know, so I'd ended up literally ticking off these things on my bucket list. And I hadn't realized that that's what I'd been doing. You know, I hadn't carried this list with me. I'd just seen experiences that were incredible and that I wanted to achieve, you know, where and where I was. And, and I looked back and went, oh, my God, I've done everything on my bucket list except swim to France. And that had been the biggest, scariest thing on my bucket list um, that I had, you know, I mean, it's it's enormous. It's huge. You can't imagine doing it. But that was the only thing left on my bucket list at the age of 30. Wow. And I think that's, <laughs> that's ties so much in with what we were discussing before we started recording with owning your goals um, and not allowing what other people's perceptions of what that goal should look like to change the satisfaction that you get from them or the decisions that you make in relation to them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not being not being defined by a diagnosis for one of, you know, whether you are, you know, you have ME or, you know, going through the stuff that I went through when I was a teenager, um, you know, not being defined by other people's ideas of what you can do as well. You know, even my family that I love very much, you know, they had no idea why I was doing what I was doing. For me, it, it was a compulsion to explore and experience because I'd spent those formative years being so afraid of my body, so trapped in my body, hating it, that I fell in love with it after a while because of what it could experience. You know, these my body allowed me to swim in the Pacific Ocean. My body allowed me to feel you know, these amazing feelings, experience meditation in a monastery. So that's what I got hooked on. And that's what led me to want to experience swimming in the English Channel. And, and to be honest, reaching France wasn't my main goal. You know, when I rode a camel in the Sahara, it, I didn't cross the entire thing. That wasn't the important thing. It was to see, to experience what it was like to do it. So to me, the training, is it possible for me to get to the day where I... I'm able to get into the water in order to swim to France healthily. Mm. You know, can I do the training? Can I put a, a pin in the map on a date and say, right, I'm going to manage my health to that point? Because then whatever happens on the swim to France, I've won. I've already achieved my goal of being prepared and believing in my mind that I can do it. That's what it was about, is, you know, getting my head to a state where I could trust my body in a year's time, because I hadn't up until that point managed it. And what I'm hearing there is a lot of really positive and affirmative I, my, me too. And it strikes me that kind of swimming became more of a, of a central force in your life when you're also traveling solo, which I imagine must have been quite terrifying just in itself, having spent so long in a wheelchair and also dependent on other people. What was that like then deciding to kind of pack yourself off by yourself in a self-sufficient manner? <laughs> to be honest, traveling solo felt like a release and freedom. Because I had been defined by other people 
as well as assisted by them, you know, when I couldn't even brush my own hair or brush my own teeth, when I couldn't walk to the toilet, you know, you were so dependent on other people. And, you know, a, a teenage, you know, imagine being a teenager and having your mum wipe your bum for you. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was desperately damaging to my sense of self. I had no sense of self at that age and stage. So running away, if you like, to experience myself and walk into a room and however people reacted to me, I could gauge who and what I was and I could test my independence you know I started off in Southern Ireland where they speak English and it's only a bus ride home you know I could get the ferry home it, it wasn't too far um, for me to go but to, genuinely I landed and got off the ferry and felt a huge weight lifted off me because the weight of expectation was gone because I was no longer the ill one in the family I was no longer the one that couldn't be relied on to stay healthy I was whoever I made myself be, you know, sort of the fake it till you make it thing. I felt genuinely um, exhilarated and terrified that I might get ill, but at the same time, free to actually redefine myself in my own terms. Mm. And how did your time with the Buddhist nun also change your relationship with your body and your mind? So when I'd lived in Ireland, I ended up running a backpackers hostel and um, I met a few people from Hawaii who'd come through and came and stayed. And they all said, oh, Beth, you need to go to Hawaii. You would love it. So after I'd been in Ireland for a couple of years um, and the party scene was just getting a bit old for me, I decided to visit somebody in Hawaii and genuinely loved the the mindset and the way of life there so much I watched my plane take off and stayed for nearly three years and ended up studying indigenous healthcare over there which really taught me about my body which really um helped me understand and feel from the inside out what the days when I felt healthy what that meant to me and helped me start to listen when I felt a bit wobbly but what it didn't address was my mind. So I went to Thailand initially to study Thai massage, um, but uh, heard about this monastery that took on foreigners to teach them intensive forms of meditation and jumped at it as fast as I could. Because to me, that was a way of studying from the inside my mind. And I ended up being asked if I wanted to ordain. And in Buddhism, nothing is permanent. So um, you ordain as long as you're dedicated to the practice of meditation. So for me, that was a, an absolute yes. You know, so, you know, shaved hair, shaved eyebrows, you know, wearing the full shebang, going through the, the whole ritual of ordaining just so that I could immerse myself and let go of everything that I knew before, everything that you might think was right, let go of your culture, let go of your predisposition to, you know, how things should be run and explore sort of the inner world and my relationship to stress. And for me, that was an absolute key learning for how to manage my body um, and my illnesses uh, was learning my relationship with stress. And for me, it was never a physical stress. So people talk about, you know, PEM with, with um, ME quite a lot, post-exertion malaise. And for me, physicality does not trigger ME 
But if I'm ill with ME, then yes, I get PEM. For me, it was emotional stress that would instantly, I would get, um, if I get stressed, my glands come up and I start to feel run down. If at that point I'm active and, and overexert myself, then I would continue to get ill. So I have to listen to frustrations. I have to listen to um, things that taxed me emotionally. And having an autistic child as a single parent really does that. <laughs> so, so I've learned to manage my stress levels and emotional levels. And, and that experience of being in the monastery and having and giving myself, I mean, when do we give ourselves a year of self-introspection? You know, it's hugely selfish and hedonistic and um, and vital, actually, you know, to to spend some time listening to yourself. And if you don't do it when you're ill, your body will make you do it at some point to actually listen to yourself. That's that's one of the things that Emmy's taught me is if if I don't listen to myself, my body's going to make me sit still in order to listen to it. It's going to shout louder. So, you know, having that year of spending my time really pinpointing the thoughts that weren't positive or the voices in my head that weren't even mine you know those 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 thoughts that we were talking about earlier that inner monologue of going why well, you're a bit of a flake or you know must try harder or I was a huge people pleaser and I think most people with ME are people pleasers because you oh I, I must try and not let them down or I must try not to disappoint other people learning to listen to that voice and 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 actually kind of be a bit of a, an Alan Sugar in my own head and firing a lot of the committee of say of actually discovering what my voice was. It was the first time that I had an idea that, you know, I can go outside of my family's remit. I can go outside of my prescribed role in life and and explore for me, just for me. And that was when I I, I started to think about longer term plans it was before I'd ever thought that I would end up swimming the channel I was only 25 in the monastery so I had another five years before I even you know start to think about it but that was the point at which I I knew that me and stress we had to we had to learn to live with each other thank you so much for for phrasing that in such an eloquent fashion as well um I think as we've discussed between us this idea of what a sick person should or shouldn't be able to do and what their triggers are is something that is so prevalent um, in society and actually we all have our very distinct journeys um, and relationship as you say with stress and how we manage that um, and I know you know from my own experience it's certainly those kind of emotional and social triggers that then lead to a situation where I can't do the things that actually make me feel better and then it's a horrible cycle of things and um, and you mentioned there that you were kind of starting to have thoughts for the future at that time in the monastery so did that experience with meditation also kind of give you tools and teach you about endurance at that time as well it I think that the experience with the monastery um gave me something to do with my head whilst I was experiencing endurance. I think that's the best way to put it. Because when I started training for the English Channel, which, you know, forwards another, you know, five years, and, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, it was when I was doing the endurance swims, you know, so say I was doing a five hour practice swim, my the meditation stopped my head from getting stressed. So yes, I was not 
adding adrenaline into the experience and I was able to be in my body without judgment so I could feel what was going on. Then I experienced the fact that I had done this already. Being in the wheelchair or driving myself through just to get through a school day felt exactly the same as the hardest training swim I ever did. You know, when you when I was doing a, a, a four hour swim, say, in, in really choppy seas. So you're getting thrown around like you're in the washing machine and you're grinding it out. That felt exactly the same as a day at school when I was 13. So I realized that I had already done endurance. And having spoken to a few sports psychologists along the way, they actually said that, yeah, you know, I have it. My, my mental state and my mental capacity for enduring quite literally discomfort has been built in from my life experiences and 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 there's a lot of people that um who are endurance athletes who may not necessarily have had illness when they're younger but had endurance built into them in some way and it's a mental state that you can get into that this is discomfort i can stop and avoid it or i can just put up with it because what i get out of it is worth it and and that is where endurance athletes are made or broken because at any stage you can stop the pain do you know what I mean um but you have to decide if what you get out of it is worth it yeah absolutely I think I, I find that when you go to those places in in endurance races and things it is it, you can access that sort of mindful space where you almost tell yourself like it's okay you're okay <laughs> like it's maybe not okay because there are choppy seas or whatever or uh, you know adverse weather conditions or something going on around you and there's a storm but actually there's been bigger storms <laughs> and ones that you have got through and you have been okay and and like you've discussed like the the doctor that finally kind of got you in terms of me saying you are con in control of this you're in control of your responses and and how you get through it and I think once you have that autonomy, that's what gives you the the strengths, really. And there's no there's no mental coaching that can kind of <laughs> replace yeah, that. Yeah, no, there really. is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, there's a brilliant little meme that goes around that says, "I am a hundred percent successful in getting through my worst days so far." You know, and that's a fantastic thing to remember. And I I remember I can't remember who said it, um, but it came into my head one day when I was doing a swim that never be afraid of rock bottom because it's a firm foundation on which to build a better self. You know, and it's like, if you if you think you're at rock bottom, but you can still think, you can still go, you know? And and, and so maybe you're not even at rock bottom, you know, because rock bottom, you can't even think, you know? And, and I think people who have been down there who, you know, whether it's suicidal or whether it's um, physical or whether it's um, self-harm, you know, there's all these different things that, that can take you to different kinds of rock bottom, whether you're so fatigued, you physically are bedridden, you know, that kind of thing, that it gives you a different kind of perspective on resilience. And, you know, it's it's a gift that I've been given that, you know, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but it's also, you don't have to go there. You know, you can choose to listen. And I think, you know, I must be truly stubborn because it took that much to make me listen to myself. You know, so you really don't need to any of your listeners, please don't feel you have to hit rock bottom in order to find resilience. It is it is a, a mindset of, yeah, just I mean, the word endurance, you know, when we talk of endurance sports. 
to endure is to put up with suffering. You know, that's kind of what it means. And for me, activity helps me work through stress. You know, I, I seem to not be able to uh, get rid of cortisol. If I don't, if I'm not active, if I don't swim or go for walks on a regular basis, I feel my stress levels building up and start to feel that sort of emotional capacity reducing so that I do start to feel run down and, and ill. So I physically need to move in order to reduce my stress levels before they get to the point of where I can't then do physical activity. You know, it has to be this kind of, on my own terms, gentle rhythm of being active enough so that I don't become incapacitated. And that is, I think, where I have been um, vilified sometimes for talking about ME and, and the fact that I don't believe that you ever truly get over entirely ME. It lives with you and you learn to live with it. Um, by people who are still suffering because they still feel incapacitated. And so they don't understand that I'm I'm just in a better place where I don't suffer my bad days because I give myself the rest. I don't feel the need to push myself through the bad days. And I will arbitrarily say absolutely no to anything and I will take the rap for it. You know, if if I lose a day of work, if I if I lose a contract. It's my health that is more important. And I prioritize that. And and the voice that you have of saying no. Only I only recognized right at the end of my channel swimming career when I actually walked away from the middle of a swim of actually saying I want to stop now, knowing that I could continue. But the emotional toll it would take would take years for me to dig my way out of. Saying no in that moment, I gave myself the power and recognized, and it was like an epiphany. I recognized that's what I'd been searching for, for doing all of my channel swims. I'd been searching for the strength in me to choose when to say no, because it was never going to be a physical barrier that I hit. I'd been searching for my edge, thinking it was going to be a physical, my body says no, when actually all along, it was me letting myself say enough. And it was such a wonderful thing. So now I do feel completely free to say yes or no to anyone whenever I feel like it, arbitrarily, with love, but with self-love first. That's such a powerful thing. And I, I can only imagine that freedom that comes from because there's no expectation anymore because you know, yeah. you know that line, you know what your enough is, you know what brings you satisfaction and you know what doesn't and you know what's pushing you over an edge that well who sat the edge anyway well it was you so <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> actually it was only me all along and then when you realize that it's like oh right I, I can make that decision how great is that <laughs> absolutely and the thing the key thing for me was to not kick myself because it was me that set the limit you know, that's something that I used to do was every now and then I would think I'd get it where I gave myself permission. But then I would kick myself for having pushed myself in the first place. Whereas actually now I know that if I get caught by something and I'm curious and fascinated and dive into something and get completely absorbed and, and drive myself in something. That's great. That's curiosity. That's 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 being a human. Choosing then to change my mind or choosing to back away from it 
is also my right and is also human and not kicking myself if as and when that's absolutely fine too and that's I think something that that was the hardest bit to learn and that's what I think usually is the last bit of lag of not kicking yourself for for driving yourself in the first place and that's it's fine and it's a beautiful thing to to get caught but I don't drive myself I wait to get driven by something I wait for that inspiration to catch me and then dive into something now and actually it was that waiting that I also just wanted to loop back to because it was something that struck me when you were talking about the time lag between thinking of these things and then instigating them and I I was thinking at the time like that's a really empowered thing too because we live in a kind of very trigger happy society where actually we need to act on things straight away get them done get the list done by 30 because then you're over the hill like what (laughs) um and what you were saying was kind of like five-year plans and things um and that's incredibly powerful and I just wondered if you could talk through that kind of trajectory from being 25 and then how all of that kind of learning and self-realization and and coming into your body and and your mind then led to you building into both these swims and your own business too with what you do with coaching and things. So when I was 25 I came back to this country and set up my business which was using all of the different tools I'd learned from indigenous healthcare practices that I'd studied around the world to initially help people like me who had difficult diagnoses or had not had any luck in allopathic medical um, spheres. So most of it was actually based body work, so different kinds of massage and rehab exercises and using the time in the monastery where I was um, actually taught to teach this form of meditation. So teaching people that relationship with themselves and, and that is the kind of thing that I do with my coaching. So most of the time, If I coach, I tend to be the mental aspect coach, getting people to work on their mindset. And a lot of the time, even if they come to me for looking at their um, their stroke improvement, we'll be talking more about how they sit in their body, about how they talk to their body, about how they're driving their body through their exercise programs. Um, so that's the side of it that that really fascinates me. And for me, it was never a set time frame. I didn't have like a five year plan. It was just a wish list, genuinely a wish list. And it was purely by happenstance. Like, you know, when you're 30, kind of people do take tell you to take stock and, you know, where you've come. Because I didn't have a mortgage. I wasn't married. I didn't have, you know, the X, Y's and Z's of what we're taught that, you know, that should be happened by your 30. Um, so I looked at what I had done and where I was at and 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 I'd been digging through you know a box that had been in my mum's attic and that's when I rediscovered this list that I'd made when I was 17 and it was this complete kind of oh my god I I, I remember writing this I remember being so low and and like fantasizing about all of these things that I I could do and that's when I realized that I'd done a lot of them and you know this kind of idea that the the English Channel was the biggest, scariest thing on my bucket list. And, and it had been there since I was a child. You know, I was I was like four or five years old. And, you know, if we went to the beach, my mum would have to keep her eyes on me genuinely because I would just walk into the water without fear. And I had this idea that I wanted to walk into the water and keep going till I hit someplace else. 
it wouldn't have mattered if it was across the river. It wouldn't have mattered if it was across a lake. I just wanted to walk and keep going. And, you know, I'd often been teased about potentially being in the Merchant Navy when I was when I was older, when I was a kid. But I didn't want to be on a boat. I wanted to be in the water. So, you know, to swim to France is kind of was considered the, the Everest of channel swims. And, you know, it was kind of I, I thought it was so big that I couldn't possibly be a person who could do that sort of thing. You know, you, it's it's huge. It's beyond Olympic. It's yeah, it's, it's 20 miles of swimming. You know, it's mad. But when I was 30 and I got pregnant, having been told that I wouldn't be able to have children, it was a kind of a complete um, surprise. Um, if I can do that, that's supposed to be impossible. I wonder if I can do something else that's impossible. And also when my son was born, um, my partner and I didn't last. So there I was a self-employed single mum. And if anything is going to trigger ME, it's being a self-employed single mum. I was genuinely terrified about getting ill as a parent because I didn't want to have my child as a carer. Um, so I decided that I wanted to train to do something that's so much harder than daily life. Therefore, daily life would seem easy. And that's where the channel swim came in, that it wasn't so much about swimming to France. It was about training to do something so much harder than my daily life. And that's what gave me the joy and the pleasure, actually, in the training of it, because, you know, then just simply the logistics of having a small child. When do you train? So I, I actually trained for the English Channel only ever training when my son was asleep. So I trained at night, which is not my best time to train. My best time to train is first thing in the morning. But I was being mum then. So I was mum first who then stretched into the areas where I could. And, you know, talking about mental preparation for endurance events, I tell you, nothing trains you like being sleep deprived and having to get up and do a normal life, you know, and actually looking at my life like that, like life is an endurance event. And, you know, having the joy and the pleasure. And, and one of the things about small children is they love being played with. And my son loved being carried on my shoulders and he loved being thrown in the air and caught. And he learned to count by sitting on my back while I did press ups. You know, kids love that kind of stuff. And so the bigger he got, the stronger I got. I gave myself two years to train because I didn't want to do a fast based training. I wanted to build up my endurance slowly and gently. So by the time he was three, I was putting him in a little wetsuit and a life jacket, board leashing him to my ankle in a dinghy so he'd been a dinghy with a snack and a water pistol and he'd point down the coast where he wanted to go and I would swim with him being dragged behind me squirting me on the back of the head if I if he wanted to talk to me or if I stopped he'd squirt me in the face so I had resistance training you know so I made my training harder by carrying my son or by towing my son so that when the actual swim came it was easier and then conversely, my training made my daily life seem easy. So it was a real kind of balance of, of juggling logistics made me brilliant at organisation. And then the training with my son made my swimming stronger. That's amazing. And there was joy in it. <laughs> and, you know, the joy of taking your child with you and, and sharing exercise. I mean, he genuinely, he did learn to count by sitting on my back. He used to sit on my hips in the swimming pool and, and ride me, you know, he'd, he'd pretend to be a cowboy and make, mummy, swim more, mummy, swim more and make me do lengths. And, you know, he, he was a part of it. And it was a joy that he would, you know, he would come with me and he would want me to do it. 
and he got to, I mean by the time he was sort of four or five if I came you know back from work on a day when I was work and if I was in a slump he'd say mummy get babysitter to go swimming you'd be happier then and he would know that if I went and swam because the water is where the world makes sense to me and and and, and swimming does make me feel good he would know that if I went for a swim I would feel better so you know if I got a babysitter for him I went for a swim and I'd come back and he genuinely would ask me, mummy, better now? I'm like, yes, thank you, darling. And, you know, it, it became, so the knowledge that he has of, I've found something that that gives me joy and, and gives me a sense of myself. He saw that happen in action. So he saw the resilience, he saw the discipline, but he saw me advocate for myself and he saw me get joy out of my body. And and so that's something that I'm so pleased that he has inbuilt in him now, that sense of adventure and that sense of exploring himself with the world around him, which for a lot of autistic um, people, they struggle with, you know. So I'm really pleased that, that that sense of adventure has been inbuilt in him. That's so amazing. And also it's, again, that idea of a perception of what the experience of being a mother to an autistic child is like because I think so many people can talk about um oh it must be a struggle it must be really difficult and obviously yes it is <laughs> um, yeah and, but you also talk about it with so much joy and he's obviously just such a wonderfully perceptive child as well and the fact that he could you know really connect with what you needed um in order to be there and show up for him as well it's just astonishing oh it's it's wonderful I mean it is it's the best thing I've ever done is I realized that Dylan I mean take a breath and don't answer this for a minute but my son's not normal but that doesn't mean it's bad and it doesn't mean it's worse so if my son can't do normal why not make abnormal fun or interesting, or fascinating, or wonderful. You know, so my son can't do some things. My can't, my son can't deal with going to school, but my son can put crampons at the age of eight on and hike over a glacier. My son can't wear underpants, but he can cope with jet lag. My son can't cope with noisy situations, but he can climb mountains, you know? So for me, it was never trying to be 360 degrees all around accessible. It was, what can we do and what can we excel at and what, you know, so yes, there are some weaknesses that you have to work on, but do the things you're good at in order to give you confidence to then tackle the things that you're not so good at. And some of the things you're not good at, you don't need to do. You know, you don't need to be good at all things. You need to, to know who you are and to know what your strengths are. And that's that's what I've worked at. And, and yeah, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to to bring up my kids. And yes, some days I feel broken because I have a disabled child. But most days, the vast majority of days, I have an exceptional child who teaches me to challenge normalcy and complacency. And that's vital. He sounds freaking awesome, to be honest. And it's again like that re <laughs> that relationship with with Emmy as well, that not focusing on the can'ts, focusing on the cans, because everybody has things that they can't do. Like other people can't go and swim the English Channel, can they? So like, it's, 
<laughs> Sometimes you can't yeah, exactly. get out of bed, but there we go. Yeah. Some people can't do that with a really bad hangover quite a lot. So like... <laughs> Exactly. Some days I can't string a sentence together. Some days I don't want to stop talking. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah. I think recognising those fluctuations and, you know, how we're not perfect circles, how, you know, to stretch into your amorphous design. And, yeah, I think for comfort zones, you know, we get, we get stuck in our comfort zones and I don't think we should make ourselves hurt, but we need to gently and joyfully and with curiosity stretch our comfort zones because that's where if we don't stretch our comfort zones, they get smaller, you know, and that's where having ME can be scary. You know, if I start to get a bit of a wobble, I naturally feel a bit nervous because I don't know how long that's going to last. And I have to really then, champion myself and advocate for myself saying okay so now rest be autocratic stop now because if you stop now for three days you don't have three months of feeling ill and stretching into your comfort zone so when you do feel well enjoy it a bit you know don't burn the candle at both ends but what do you want to do with your time and and I I love now having those sort of little projects that I've just got into pottery you know and, and learning to to throw pots and things like that you know stretch your comfort zone in different ways you know go to the gym when you want to or go for a swim when you want to or learn to surf or you know meet up with people who have different interests with you to take you in different directions when you feel like it because you'd never know we none of us ever know what health issues we're going to have around the corner so, yeah, exploring life is the best way of approaching it. And, yeah, explore when you feel like it and rest and hibernate when you like it and, and be a human. Be human because we're all human. I mean, I think one of the things that I've really appreciated since walking away from um, my Ocean 7 project and being challenged on whether I should or should not have started it, it is being your own hero very much is about being brave enough to be vulnerable to say this is what I can do but this is what I can't these are my weaknesses but these are my strengths and and if we all do that you know we're all beautiful jigsaw pieces we all fit together in different ways we're just not all square or circle you know we can work with each other that you know if I'm not good at accounts but I'm good at you know massaging my accountant may not be good at you know looking after their body I'll look after their body they look after my money great you know, we we all have different strengths and we can all kind of, yeah, we're all human. You know, so if I'm good at writing and somebody else is good at talking, I can write what they say. You know, we, it all works out in the end if we are all honest. And and that that is quite a vulnerable thing to do because it means you have to know yourself well, but you have to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm not very good at this bit. I might need help with this bit. I'm working on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine that that must also be a really strong position to combat other voices that maybe are critical of what you should or shouldn't do or how you should behave as a single mother of an autistic child or as an ill person. Should you really be doing these challenges? Isn't that going to make you sick? And I can imagine that perhaps there may have been some of those voices from both those close to you, which it who it can sometimes be the hardest to hear them from, I think, and and from strangers as well. 
Yeah, there's there's always challenges. I mean, you know, it, it's been a fascinating journey with my mum because my mum was a fantastic mum. She was a stay-at-home mum, but she was a farmer's wife stay-at-home mum. So she was being very artistic and creative, teaching us, you know, all about art and, and cooking and, you know, all different aspects of creative life whilst taking care of a farm. But her idea of motherhood was very much that of staying at home and looking after the kids, being your job and being very good at it. And she was very proud of it. So when I went a different way, not just because I had a job, but because then I I chose a life outside of traditional motherhood to seek myself in, it really challenged her. And it wasn't until again, until I'd, I'd walked away from it, that we actually had a conversation where she felt that because I did it differently, I must think her way wasn't right. And I was rejecting her version of motherhood. But actually, the way I see it is I couldn't have been the version of motherhood that I am without her teaching me to be a, a strong woman. And what I've done with my kid is motherhood. This is what my motherhood looks like. You know, it, it it looks like me towing my child in a dinghy. It looks like me, you know, hiking Table Mountain with him at three and a half. And he was barefoot and, you know, loving it. That's what motherhood has looked like for me. And I don't decry other people doing it differently at all. It's what's right for them. You know, I I, I couldn't, I was never going to be a mum at the school gates because my kid couldn't cope with school. Okay, so, you know, I don't envy other people doing it their way. I don't think people should envy me doing it my way. But I think, you know, we're all going to do it differently because we are all different. Mm. And is that what you were, because I was going to ask kind of what advice you would have for other people who feel that they are perhaps unacceptable and want to live life on their terms? That phrase, unacceptable to be unacceptable, unacceptable to what and to whom? Mm. Um, oh, um, I think I <laughs> love that response. <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah, yeah. My survey says eh, eh. Um, to be unacceptable. Uh, to be alternative. You know, don't think of it in terms of being unacceptable. Think of it in terms of being alternative and. To open up, I think it is the greatest gift to other people that I am showing them an alternative way of doing things. You know, if you can get your head around that, that if you choose to do something different, you are giving other people options too. And it can be, you, you do sometimes feel like you're swimming upstream because the vast majority of people do it in a particular way. But just because I don't watch Love Island, doesn't mean that I'm wrong it gives other people the option of not feeling they have to to have a water cooler moment too it, you know it is there are different ways of being cool you can be cool for doing it your own way I love that you can be your own uncool definitely <laughs> and I'm I'm interested to learn um just thinking back to that list that resurfaced and maybe part of you thought damn you 17 year old self and those <laughs> that channel swim do you have anything left on your bucket list or has the bucket list changed perhaps you and Dylan now have a bucket list together so swimming English channel genuinely was the last thing on my bucket list mm -hmm. um so what do you do when you finish your bucket list at 32 you know you have to 
expand your horizons because evidently I didn't think big enough. Um, <laughs> so no, there was this constantly evolving. To me now, it's not, there's not a bucket list. There's not things that, oh, I must do that before I die. That was very much um, an exercise in giving myself a future. Now I know I have an exciting future that where whatever I imagine I can have a go at, that's where I'm at, is literally, I think, whatever I imagine, I can have a go at now. So before the pandemic hit, Dylan and I were planning to go to Svalbard. Um, now, when I walked away from my swim in Japan, I went back to the hotel where Dylan was staying and very proudly declared, Dylan, you know, I'm done with that game. I'm, you know, I'm really excited to, to, to just be your mum for a while. He genuinely looked at me and said, oh, you're a bit of a disappointment, mother. And I was really taken aback. But I know him well enough to go, why Why do you say that, sweetheart? And he said, well, because we'll never adventure again. And I said, oh, OK, well, how about you come up with our next adventure? Which was a very big mistake because he said, without even taking a breath, he said, oh, good. We're going to go stay in a yurt in Alaska in the snow in the winter. And I was like, oh, great. And me, I don't I'm not a cold person. But I researched it and I've got a friend who lives in Alaska and we did. We went and stayed with my friend. We found a, a public access yurt in a nature valley that was a two hour hike from the nearest stopping spot. They lent us a meat packing sled from a hunter friend that we packed camping gear on and hiked. My, my nine year old child and I hiked for two hours through his, it was nearly waist deep snow on him that we hiked through to this, this yurt and stayed there. And his next project was, he said, mummy, you like swimming. Why didn't you bring your swimming gear? And I said, because the river's frozen, sweetheart. So he said, well, next, next you have to find a hole in the ice because you need to go swimming. So I researched, I researched a glacier in Austria that has natural tunnels that lead underneath this glacier where there's water flowing and you take a mountain guide with you and they will allow you to swim 30 meters below the surface of a glacier. So apparently that was disappointing to Dylan because I didn't turn blue or scream when I got in the water. So his next project was we have to go to the North Pole so you can swim past an iceberg. So that was what we were due to do before the pandemic hit. We were going to go to Svalbard um, to go uh, and swim past an iceberg there. Um, so the pandemic kind of kiboshed that a little bit. But yeah, so I have no idea what projects are cooking up. For <laughs> but for me, the distance thing, I don't feel the need to, to swim far. I want to swim in beautiful places in unusual environments. Um, yeah. And just see where the world takes me. So beautiful. I mean, Dylan, we need to have a word, but um, <laughs> I think you're trying to kill me. <laughs> but that does bring me nicely um, onto my final question, which I ask all my guests, which is what does joy mean to you, Beth? Joy for me can be the quietest of feelings and in the quietest of moments, it is the the bubbling up of inspiration. That is what joy means to me is any moment that even I mean, and I mean inspiration even in the quietest of moments where you get that moment of calm mm. that is joy it is the uplifting sense of connection Beth you are phenomenal and I have enjoyed this time with you so so much and I think bubbling up of inspiration is certainly something that just epitomizes both you and 
Dylan, who is certainly full of creativity and inspiration, as, as we have learned. We don't know what you'll be doing next. <laughs> and I think our, our conversation could have gone so many ways. And I'm mindful, you know, we could have we could have spoken more intricately about, you know, the ins and outs of swimming and your training and things. But actually, what is the most powerful thing about you is you um and I'm really glad that we sort of I, I hope kind of gave that gave that space um and and sort of reflected on on the power of your your mind and resilience and just absolute joy for for life and experiences so thank you so much for for sharing that with us I feel so grateful to have connected Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really lovely to, to dive into those conversations and to explore those parts of our lives because we all have them. We all have them. Absolutely. And if people do, and I love the fact that you kind of ended on the word connection. Um, if people want to connect with you, um, is, is there social media links that I can that I can post um, or sure. your website? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, bethfrench.co.uk. It couldn't be more simple. And Beth French lives because I do. <laughs> Beth French lives on Instagram and Facebook. And there's a wonderful film as well, isn't there, that, that people can see about your channel swims. Am I right? Absolutely. Yes. My last project, the Ocean 7 project, was captured by a BAFTA nominated director, which is incredible. And it's called Against the Tides. Oh, very swish. You can find that on her website as well. I definitely recommend that. Thank you so much again, Beth. And I, I hope this is the start of, um, you know, lots of interactions and conversations for the future, too. But do take care. And to Dylan, Dylan, too, with his, with his adventures. <laughs> Might have him on the podcast in the future as well. <laughs> I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy I'd love to hear from you Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.